My talk today is part of a broader research project which focuses on how punishment constitutes marginality and vice versa. My specific interest is in the spatialization of punishment. In other words, the relationship between punishment scale and jurisdiction and spatialization through punishment. In other words, how punishment is a means to sustain and create unequal spaces. The research I'm presenting today has recently been published as an article in Social and Legal Studies. It is framed around incidents of collective violence that occurred over a three-month period in 2015 in Masipumalele, a former black township in Cape Town, South Africa. I'm going to start by relating a story. In the early hours of September the 15th, 2015, Amani Pula, a 13-year-old boy, was brutally murdered in his own home by three intruders who were allegedly high on tuk, which is a highly addictive metamphetamine. This precipitated an outpouring on, of anger on the part of community members who had, for some time, been complaining about high crime rates in Masi. That evening, at an emotion-laden mass meeting held outside in a local square and attended by at least 500 people, there was a public denunciation of drug dealers and a collective decision made to search for Amani's murderer. A delegation of young men aged between 20 and 35 was mandated to carry out this task. They were specifically looking for someone who had been arrested earlier during the day as a suspect in a rape. This person was released because the rape victim could not identify him. But a rumor was circulating that he had been seen with Amani's murderer and was somehow complicit. He was found while sleeping in a car, dragged to the main square and beaten to death while a massive crowd looked on. About five days after the first Koza Square meeting, the Masi Pomelele Youth Forum emerged as the main formation at the forefront of a mass mobilization against crime. It embarked on a drugs must fall campaign aimed at publicly denunciating and acting against general criminality, drug use and drug dealing. Its members forced scholies, who are young boys who were known drug users and who allegedly robbed in order to feed their drug habits, to reveal where they were obtaining their supplies. They conducted drug searches and meted out violent punishments ranging from purported expulsions to executions. At least eight suspected drug dealers were killed by the vigilantes, although some claimed that this number was as high as 22. Eventually, on the 22nd of October, the police arrested and detained Lubabalo Velem. Described in court as an influential community leader who was at the forefront of the violence, he was charged with multiple offenses, including the murder of a 32-year-old man in what the prosecutor described as a mob vigilante attack. Belém's arrest precipitated a series of mass protests, resulting in 37 people being arrested for public violence. 
After a highly charged bail hearing, where more than a thousand protesters singing struggle songs and toy-toying dis um, disrupted the proceedings and demanded the release of their leader, Velem was released on bail, subject to stringent conditions. He was prohibited from returning to Masi until the charges against him were finalized, and he had to stay with his sister in Kaya which is another former black township more than 30 kilometers away. There he was to report to the police station twice, three times a day. By May 2019, more than three years later, his trial was yet to begin. And although no longer living in Masi, he was a regular visitor. After his release and the withdrawal of the public violence charges against all but eight of the protesters, the, the protests died down. I use the discourse around these incidents of lethal collective violence as a window for looking at how punishment is constituted from below in contexts of inequality and how punitive forms of popular justice interact with state punishment. I'm going to argue that the collective violence that occurred in Massey in 2015 was not merely a response to a failing criminal justice system, even though this was an important contributing factor, but it was also rooted in the ideology of revolutionary justice. What might on the face of it have appeared as a simple, albeit violent campaign against drugs had clear echoes of current and past popular justice initiatives. For example, the name Drugs Must Fall campaign was a clear reference to the Roads Must Fall and Fees Must Fall student protests which were occurring at the same time at universities in South Africa. The Massey Fallists were campaigning against drugs and drug dealers. Far from being conservative supporters of establishment violence and stroke or drug dealers, um, and stroke or challenges of the human rights is enshrined in the South African constitution, they had an alternative social vision, one, one which drew on radical, redistributive and traditional conservative ideology. I make three key arguments. Firstly, that my interlocutors viewed the provision of state welfare as a means to prevent crime and simultaneously viewed punishment as a baseline necessity for welfare. I call this punitive welfareism. As an ideology, it lies at the intersection of popular justice and vigilantism and the technology of violence, specifically corporal punishment, is central to it. Secondly, I argue that this corporal punishment cannot be considered apart from colonial and apartheid penal violence and is part of an assemblage of exclusionary penal forms, both formal state and non-formal non-state. These are all to some degree or other rooted in historic and current state projects of exclusion of racialized others. Thirdly, I argue that my case study is an example of how vigilantism and stroke or popular justice both limit and uphold a mythical image of the law 
and as such is an ambivalent, vacillating and unstable phenomenon. Masipomalele, meaning we will succeed in Isiklaza, is less than two kilometers wide, covers approximately 0.45 square kilometers, and is one of the most densely populated former black townships in the Western Cape. Approximately 40,000 people live in the original formal township and 21,000 in the wetlands informal settlement. The latter is a flood-prone area of uneven and damp land, which is owned by the city of Cape Town. Masi was established after a black squatter community won the right to land in a white group area in the late 1980s. As such, unlike those townships to which black people were forcibly relocated during apartheid, Masi is surrounded by middle-class, affluent, and largely white neighborhoods. It is a vivid example of how, 25 years after the first democratic elections in 1994, poverty still has a strong spatial and racialized dimension. 85% of the residents live in shacks in the backyards of privately owned houses or in the adjacent wetlands informal settlement. Since informal settlements either have non-existent or sporadic and inadequate access to the services that the ratepayers in more affluent areas pay for, conditions in the wetlands are appalling. Approximately 3,000 people live in each of the seven sections. There is only one water point and the ratio of outside often malfunctioning toilets is um, one to 100 residents. The canals that run between the sections are often clogged with rubbish, including sewage. The area is prone to fires and flooding and massive mounds of garbage lie heaped throughout the narrow footpaths that traverse the area. During one site visit, I witnessed the aftermath of a city of Cape Town authorized shack demolition. These are common in informal settlements and a shack fire which residents doused themselves by passing buckets from one person to the next. Despite the fact that someone had called the fire department, a fire engine did not arrive. This is typical of the way in which residents in informal settlements have been forced out of necessity to assume responsibility for governing themselves, including the investigation of crime and punishing of alleged criminals. Although in the post-1994 era, South Africans are theoretically at least equal before the law, with punishment no longer permitted to be cruel and unusual and stroke or to violate dignity, the social meanings attached to it are still very much underpinned by a palpable sense of racial discrimination. As was the case during apartheid, the racialized poor are still disproportionately imprisoned and victimized by violent crime. There are countless examples of the police failing to keep crime victims in poor black townships informed about their cases, disappearing dockets or not responding at all. Despite the fact that almost 65,000 people, possibly more live in Masi, the closest police station is some five kilometers away. 
Thus, not only is criminal punishment intertwined with racial oppression, but the victims of crime, particularly violent crime, are also disproportionately racialized. There was an overwhelming perception among my interviewees that constitutional rights were used selectively in favor of criminals and against the poor. This sense of injustice was compounded by the glaring inequality between white middle-class suburbs and informal settlements. As one person put it, the only thing we want is for the police to be visible, like in town. My interviewees questioned why rapists, murderers, and drug dealers were released immediately, whereas our people, the 37 protesters who had been ar arrested in 20, um, 2015, were detained for a few days and had to obtain the services of an expensive lawyer in order to secure bail. Similarly, there was widespread agreements that Vellum's bail condition were unfair and too harsh. It is particularly traumatic for the families of crime victims when suspects are suddenly released back into the community with no forewarning. This happened to Tembeka, and this, this is not her real name, a young woman who lived in, two, in, in a two-room backyard shack with her husband and two children, sharing a toilet with 15 other people. Tembeka described to me how in 2010, her young son and sister witnessed the murder of her mother by their mentally unstable neighbor. For two years after the suspect was arrested and charged with murder, she repeatedly sought information about the investigation. This entailed traveling back and forth to the Weinberg and Simonstown magistrates courts, some 13 and 25 kilometers away to speak to criminal justice officials each time having to pay for a taxi. One day, she saw the murderer back in the same building. This traumatized her so much that she moved away. As she said, even today, I'm asking myself, why did my mom die? Because it will be much better if I know the reason. These types of cases, and everyone I interviewed in Massey had a personal story to relate about crime contribute to deeply held perceptions about the unfairness and thus illegitimacy of the administration of criminal justice in South Africa. It wasn't that my interlocutors denied the granting of rights to those accused of crime, but that rights were granted to the wrong people. Thus, Tokozane stated that he did not agree with rights for bail, rights for this and this and this, because they are not in favor of poor people. And that this is why we want the constitution changed so that it can favor the poor people. So it can deal with unnecessary rights that are given to the wrong people. Clearly, his comments were not only about criminality, but were about racially skewed land ownership patterns in South Africa. Tokozane was alluding to the political debate about changing the constitution, the property clause in particular, so as to provide for state expropriation of privately owned land without compensation. Thus, the narrative that rights are given to the wrong people justified both popular struggles for socioeconomic justice, 
particularly insofar as land and housing was concerned, as well as vigilantism. A different yet related example of the intertwining of popular justice and vigilantism was, ev was evidenced by the Massey Youth Forum's decision to destroy the shacks of drug dealers. But in those cases where a dealer lived in a brick and mortar house, they would be evicted and the house would be given to somebody else instead of being demolished. Thus, in terms of a violent form of redistributive justice, the vigilantes forcefully evicted a female cannabis dealer and her family and gave the home to an old lady. In a type of inversion of the less eligibility principle, most interviewees believed that prisoners enjoyed better state benefits than law-abiding citizens. According to Tokazane, to be in prison is like you are in a restaurant or a hotel. And Sifo was angry that they destroy you. They destroy someone's life outside and they go inside, they promote their lives. He complained about the fact that there were only four social workers in Masi with no one to counsel rape victims, whereas prisoners received counseling in prison. Yet, despite the support for harsher conditions and longer prison sentences, my interviewees recognized that overcrowded townships and poor living conditions were key contributors to crime. The demand for punitive treatment of criminals was always coupled with demands for houses, land, and general services, including sanitation, water, and electricity. This desire to see a stronger and more protective state is central to my concept of punitive welfareism. My interlocutors were certainly not denying procedural rights to all criminally accused. And in those instances where they did, it was always in, imbricated in the state's perceived failure to respect the dignity of poor black crime victims. The people I spoke to often blurred the idea of justice, which in Isitraza is umbolongiswa, with retribution and revenge. Their support for retribution and distrust of the criminal justice system emanated from a deep sense of social injustice and the moral inappropriateness of the state's perceived leniency towards criminality added to the sense of injustice. Rather than claiming that the state lacked a right to blame because of the unjust circumstances within which it did so, my interlocutors called on the state to blame better and more harshly. Whether by threat or otherwise, the meeting out of violence onto the body of the criminal is critical to local perceptions of justice. Violence functions as a technology of redress, which unlike the official state and stroke or private insurance is always available for the poor. It is also a mechanism of instruction. I want to pause here and stress that corporal punishment, whether official in the form of judicial and penal punishment or unofficial in the form of the random and arbitrary violence imposed by white settlers on native subjects was a central pillar of colonial and apartheid rule. 
it was an instrument of racialized and paternalistic control and was an integral mechanism of the civilizing mission in terms of an ethos or um, an ethos which framed black Africans as childlike and only able to comprehend the language of bodily violence. By the early 1990s, just before the practice was ruled unconstitutional by the, uh, the South African court, the, the, the South African state was carrying out more than 32,000 juvenile whippings per year. These were primarily inflicted on the bodies of young black males as a means to divert them from the prison. Yet the practice itself was far more widespread than official statistics revealed. It was a central technology of discipline and identity formation among the subjects of apartheid rule and liberation movements in exile as well as within former black townships relied heavily on flogging as a disciplinary technique. Whereas residents in middle-class, formerly white neighborhoods rely on insurance policies when their material possessions are stolen and contract out the use of violence against suspected criminals to private security companies. In marginalized areas, it is through violence that people secure material and symbolic compensation. All of my interviewees um, regarded beating a little as in pursuit of information about stolen property and stroke or to obtain the truth about some other crime as acceptable. Public corporal punishment also plays a central role in community censure and in assuaging collective trauma, even if the person being punished did not directly harm those who are meeting out the punishment. As someone explained, Sometimes when a thief is being caught, if you lose something, even if you didn't, even if he didn't steal it, you beat him because you blame him. Even those other people who lost their stuff. When people are passing, you always follow the mob because in our community, you want to be a witness. You want to see what's going to happen with that guy. You want to see him being punished. According to Joseph, who acknowledged that he had participated in the search for Amani's murderer, justice is if you got the right sentence, 20 years to life imprisonment without early release in the case of rape or murder. Although he referred to justice in our tradition as meaning when you get punishment, his reference to the right sentence was clearly a gesture towards formal law, which provides for minimum sentences of five, seven, 10, 15, 20, and 25 years for a range of offenses to be imposed. And so he equated justice for Amani with beating the suspected perpetrator, because since people go to prison and come back out, it's better to beat him up. Thus, justice was better served by assault rather than by revolving door imprisonment. Although my interviewees also referred to ostensibly nonviolent punishments, such as the payment of compensation by a wrongdoer's family, and in the case of a serious offense, expulsion from an area, these were often secured through the threat, whether express or implicit, 
of the violence that would ensue in the case of non-compliance. Like the long-term prison sentences that most of my interviewees demanded, these expulsions served to purge local communities of criminals and scullies. Sometimes expulsions were, like imprisonment, couched in a reformative discourse. In a context of great scarcity and lack of access to state-run social services, banishment was justified as a way to avoid prison and to rehabilitate, particularly in the case of youth. However, as Joseph acknowledged, this did not solve the problem of drug addiction and was experienced as a punishment by those on the receiving end. Most people, including those who supported the reintroduction of the death penalty, drew a line between killing and beating. Whereas beating was justifiable if it was carefully calibrated so as to discipline and punish, killing was an unacceptable, although not entirely unanticipated outcome of collective punishment. Even Mr. Mfaketo, who was still traumatized by the death of his nephew at the hand of vigilantes in 2015, supported corporal punishment to obtain the truth and stroke or to punish. According to him, the crucial thing was not to lose control and not to beat on the head. It was, however, acceptable to beat on the body, just like a children when your children is doing something. Similarly, Mandla distinguished between killing and beating. As he said, even if South African law doesn't agree with us, sometimes it, beating, is a winning formula. Us people coming from the rural areas, we know that there's not much crime there because they can punish you physically, but they can't kill you. They can punish you physically and then you are back on track. Criminal behavior can be changed by beating. Bulalani, like Mandla, also drew selectively on cultural markers in his justification of corporal punishment. As he put it, a black person is not like a white child. A white child, you can sit in a chair and say as parents, no, John, this, what you are doing is not right. You can you stop what you are doing? He or she will understand, but a black child, before he stops that, he must feel pain. That's why we believe that when you catch a scully, you must beat the scully to get him to stop or to show us where he sells the stuff. In differentiating between black and white children, my interlocutor was making a clear distinction between poor black township residents who had nothing and the white middle classes with their ready access to privatized social services, which they could draw on instead of corporal punishment. Violence, specifically beating, is thus a crucial technology of exchange, a way to teach someone a lesson and also a mechanism to retrieve stolen property. It is a stark reminder of the inequality of lived experiences between the privileged whiteness or the privileged civility of whiteness and being black and poor in South Africa. Despite justifying corporal punishment as playing an educational role and being a central, uh, central to the production of order, 
My interviewees acknowledge that what started out as being a simple beating or a banishment had the potential to collapse into uncontrollable lethal violence. And the majority claimed not to support lethal collective violence at all. Despite this, they still thought that Masi was safe during this period of Asi Pelelange. Roughly translated from Isitloza, Asi Pelelange means we are not enough because one of us is missing. And it is the title of a song that was sung by protesters during the 1980s when the apartheid state exercised its draconian powers of detention without trial over township activists. In 2015, in its reinvented form, Asi Pelelanga was both a song sung by protesters to lament Velem's detention and also the informal name of the anti-drugs campaign. Everyone nostalgically referred to a time when they were able to walk around with their cell phones at night and in the early morning without the fear of being robbed. This highlights the ambivalent relationship that um, my interlocutors had with violence. It is possible that they didn't want me, or they didn't want to admit to me that they had participated in the violence. Instead, they blamed the community for it. Another explanation is that even if they didn't overtly participate or support lethal vigilantism, they nevertheless enjoyed being able to walk around without fear of being robbed at knife point. Even those bystanders who either didn't participate in the violence or who drew a line between beating and killing regarded ridding the community of a threat as a socially acceptable result. In this way then, punishment and vengeance collapse into each other and the criminal becomes the archetypal enemy who must be expelled from the community with death being the ultimate form of expulsion. Yet, and this is a crucial part of my argument, which brings me to my third and last point. The discourse and practices around imprisonment are also like the vengeance that I just referred to based on the removal of the offender from their community. South Africa is second only to the US in terms of the high percentage of lifers in its prison population. Even when justified by the ideology of rehabilitation, the offender's character is, is to a greater or lesser extent presented as deficient and in need of correction. In this sense, liberal punishment or liberal imprisonment, whether for the purposes of rehabilitation or incapacitation, is linked to the vengeance from which it distances itself. The violence that is meted out on the body of the offender by vigilantes reflects and amplifies the othering that underpins long-term imprisonment. In both instances, there is a lack of identification with what Marcus Duba calls the offender's personhood. The degree might differ, but the essence is the same. Both official state and unofficial non-state or popular punishment are grounded in a mutually constitutive continuum of othering. 
instead of being based on recognition of the humanity of both victim and offender. Thus, justice is conflated with vengeance, whether soft or hard, in terms of which the aim is to remove certain criminals from society via long-term imprisonment, banishment, or lethal collective violence. To make some concluding points, the sense of injustice and indignity that was vocalized by everyone I spoke to was deeply entwined with and rooted in the historical legacy of racism and inequality, which is still a dominant fault line in South Africa today. It is not that residents reject the rule of law, but to the contrary, they are demanding a thick version of it, one which involves more than just law. Thus, popular punitivism in South Africa's former black townships can't be considered apart from the historical context of state-imposed violence, both physical and structural, precarity and material deprivation. When the state is perceived to be failing to both impose punishment and provide welfare, violence becomes a technology of exchange, which simultaneously seeks both more punishment and more welfare. The result is an assemblage of exclusionary penal forms, which broaden the already existing weaknesses and fault lines of liberal punishment, exposing the tensions and overlaps between justice, punishment, and vengeance. Thanks.